Good morning, Journey. And I want to say good morning to all of you who are streaming. As a matter of fact, if you're on spring break streaming, I'd love to know where you are. So take a picture of yourself watching church and post it so we can understand where all the ministry of Journey is happening today. Okay, pop quiz if you're in the room this morning. If you could go any place in history, at any time in history, where would you go? So if you had a time machine that you could use one time to go anywhere in history, at any time in history, where would you go? Um, Danielle and I have started watching the show called Timeless which our kid, with our kids, which is a new show that may not even make it to an, another season, probably because it's, you know, it just doesn't have enough crazy stuff in it. But I have loved it. As a former history major, um, before I decided to go into ministry, I've loved this show Timeless because it's about this group of people who has a time machine who basically goes back in the, in the most important moments of American history and makes sure things don't change so that American history is preserved. And to get to see you know, kind of up close and personal, the Alamo, to get to see some aspects of the Revolutionary War, to, to get to see Chicago in the old Al Capone mobster days, just for a history buff has been really, really fun to think about. And I've thought about, I mean, if I've had a time machine for one day, if I could go any place in history at any time in history, where would I go? And I have decided the answer for me is very easy. If I had a time machine and could go anywhere in history at any time in history, there's only one place I'd go, and I would go time and time and time again. I would go to the 72-hour period between when they put Jesus on the cross and when he walked out of the grave, and here's the reason. I wanted to make sure it really happened. I mean, I got to be really honest with you. My faith in life is based around the things that the Bible says happened in those 72 hours really happening. So if I could see it up close and personal, if I could go anywhere at any time, I would show up in Jerusalem on Friday morning. I would watch through the crucifixion process. I'd watch Jesus be buried. And then I would sit a chair right outside the grave. And I would wait until Sunday morning to make sure he walked out of it. Because if that really happened... It changes everything in my life. And if it didn't happen, well, then to be brutally honest with you, really nothing in this book even matters. You say, Christian, that's a pretty strong statement to make. It's not my statement. It's actually what the Apostle Paul said. Paul was a guy in the first century who planted churches around the Mediterranean world telling them about Jesus. One of the cities he planted a church in was called Corinth. And in Corinth, they wrote back and they asked Paul a question. Basically, hey, can you, like, can you be a Christian and follow Jesus and not believe in all the resurrection stuff? And Paul said to them, you don't have to turn there. It's going to be on the screens. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19, listen, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul basically said if Jesus didn't really raise, if Easter didn't really happen, then Christians are the most pitiful group of people on the planet. Like if Easter didn't really happen from the cross to the grave and beyond the grave, if, if Easter didn't really happen then Christians should be pitied more than any other group of people on planet Earth because they, are a really, they really are a sad bunch if Easter didn't happen. But Paul goes on to say, thank God, in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. 
And he is the first fruits, which means the first of many that will come behind who will die and then be raised to an eternal life. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If Easter happened, it changes everything. If it didn't happen, then really none of this matters. We're going to say that it did happen. And for the next five weeks, we're going to sit in this 72-hour window and we're going to watch it happen. We're starting a series today called Famous Last Words. And here's the goal of Famous Last Words. I want to help give you the soundtrack of Easter weekend. Many of you could draw the picture. If I say, hey, draw a picture of Easter, even those who haven't been born and raised in church could do it. How many crosses? Three. Three. There are going to be three. Are they up on a hill or are they down in a valley somewhere? They're up on a hill. Like, Like we know the picture in our mind. We know what Easter looks like. But do you know what Easter sounds like? The goal of this series in the next five weeks is to help you understand what Easter sounds like. Do you know that in the roughly six or seven hours that Jesus put a cross on his back until they took him off that cross that he said only seven things? And did you know those seven things he said, which lay the soundtrack for Easter weekend, are maybe the most important phrases that he uttered in all of his ministry. And if we can learn the famous last words of Jesus from the cross, we can learn more and understand more about Easter than we've ever learned or understood before. That's our goal starting today and going through Easter weekend, which is five weeks from today. And you have more opportunities to learn this truth in this series than we've ever had at our church before. Starting in two weeks, you're going to have four chances every Sunday to get into church and be a part of listening, which means you're going to have four opportunities to stream live um, if you're out someplace else, but you're connected you know, wirelessly. That, you also, every week, can go back and archive stream the messages or listen to the message. I'm going to ask you not to miss a single message in this series. Because when you hear what Jesus has to say about Easter, it changes how you see and process Easter. Today, we're going to start with Jesus' first statement from the cross in Luke chapter 23. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 23. Pull your notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along or fire up your Journey Church International app. All our scripture notes will be loaded onto there. And kind of hold your Bible and keep it open today because we're going to be flipping around a little bit as we study the words of Jesus from the cross. And I want to remind you of this before we get too deeply into Luke. You need to know Luke was not at the cross. Four men wrote, wrote books about the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke was the only one of the four who was not there the day that Jesus died. But here's what Luke says. In the beginning of his book, Luke said, I didn't personally witness all this, but I have interviewed eyewitnesses to everything. So Luke said, I need you to understand, everything I write down, someone who was there told me. So when we read Luke, we are reading an investigative journalist writing a first-person account of what someone who was there on that day telling him word for word. That is Luke's story, the story of someone who was at the cross on that day. And as we get to Luke chapter 23, Luke has walked us through the Last Supper. He's talked to those who were there. He's walked us through the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus and his disciples prayed all night. He's walked us through the arrest and through the trials of Jesus, both before a Roman court and a Jewish court. He's walked us through the scourging of Jesus with a cat of nine tails by a Roman centurion. He's walked us through a crown of thorns being placed on Jesus' head. He's walked us through a beam of a tree being placed on Jesus' back. And he's walked us now to the place of execution where Jesus will be laid upon a cross that will be raised up until he dies. And here are Luke's words from eyewitnesses of that day, starting in verse 32 of Luke 23. 
Luke says two other men, both criminals, were let out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sins? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Beginning today and for the next five weeks, we'll sit at the foot of the cross and listen to Jesus talk. Today, we're going to look at an offer of forgiveness that Jesus offered from the cross. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the reality of human weakness from the cross. The week after that, as we transition into four Sunday services, we're going to look at the importance of a spiritual family. I'm going to teach you something called the James Effect, which I believe will forever change the way you see spiritual family on that day. On Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about the gift of eternal life. On April 2, we're going to talk about the necessity of punishment. And on Easter, we're going to learn that we can start at the finish line of the race. It's going to be an unbelievable series, but we start today with an offer of forgiveness. Jesus' first statement from the cross revealed two pretty powerful things. Let's look at it one more time. If you haven't already, underline it this time as we read it. If you have a pen in your Bible or highlight it, however you do that on your electronic Bible that you're using, Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Let's read it one more time. It's pretty short. Jesus said, Father, what are the next two words? Forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You know, when we look at this statement of Jesus uttered from the cross, we see a couple different things that are really, really important. First, we see Jesus' purpose. We see the purpose of Jesus spoken from the cross one more time, but this wasn't the first time he spoke it. For more than three years of ministry, Jesus had, trying to, had tried to help people understand this. Jesus' purpose had never been a secret, But it wasn't widely understood either. That's why even after his crucifixion, resurrection, his disciples were still kind of confused. What does this kingdom of God now look like? Not everyone always understood that Jesus' biggest offer to humanity was forgiveness. But from the cross, he reminded us of his purpose. Now, the night before, he made this very clear to his disciples. And what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, if, if you've grown up in church... Um, What you celebrate in the Lord's communion, if that's what your faith tradition calls it, or maybe the Holy Eucharist, when you take the cup and you take the bread, that all comes from the Lord's Supper, the night Jesus and his disciples were celebrating Passover, and Jesus took a cup of wine and he began to pass it around to his disciples. It symbolized the blood of an Old Testament lamb, but Jesus said, in this Passover Seder, which is what that dinner's called, this this time it's going to be different. He said this in Matthew 26, 28, this is my blood now of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, Jesus couldn't have said it any clearer. I have come to forgive people of their sins. He couldn't have demonstrated it any clearer than he did on the cross when he said, God, forgive these people of their sins. 
Jesus clearly stated his purpose, but he also demonstrated it over and over. And what we learn in the three years of Jesus' ministry is when people understood his purpose, it drew them to him. Like when people get, oh, this is why he's come. Oh, this is what he'll do for me. Oh, he's willing to forgive me. Oh, I can get a second chance. Oh, I can get a 100th chance or a 1,000th chance. Oh, I can start over. Oh, I can walk away from that poor decision. When people understood that Jesus offered forgiveness, it drew them to him, starting with his disciples. You know, in the last few weeks, I've started studying just a brief history of the disciples, and here's what I've learned. Do you know, nowhere in the Gospels does it say that Jesus physically healed any of his disciples? So none of the young men who committed their entire life to him committed to him because they were physically healed. We don't even read that any of his disciples were hungry or thirsty or in prison, and he rescued them, fed them, or gave them something to drink. These were not a group of young men who had nothing and needed everything. Which means what Jesus provided for them and what drew them to Jesus was spiritual healing, not physical healing. Was spiritual nourishment, not physical nourishment. They came because they needed what Jesus offered spiritually, which was forgiveness. Point in case is Matthew. If you have your Bible, you know, some of you have things in your Bible that you didn't know. Some of you never knew that the strings in your Bible were used to hold your place. So if you have strings in your Bible, hold your place in Luke chapter 23 and flip backwards to Matthew 9. That's why they're there. You're welcome. There's also maps in the back if you want to look at those every now and then too. Just some useful tools. But I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. Because in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew gives us a, a cameo of himself in his book, which means he writes himself into his own story. And he doesn't say the day I met Jesus, but if we know who the author is, we can kind of say, okay, this is how Matthew met Jesus. Matthew tells us a story about the day he met Jesus, and I learned a reality studying this very familiar Bible story that I never knew before. When I read it, it blew my mind. I mean, to be totally honest with you, I read it and I thought, I never knew that before. That's unbelievable. In Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9, Matthew takes us back to the day he met Jesus, and and he gives himself a cameo. He says, as Jesus went on from there, Matthew 9, 9, he saw a man named Matthew. So Matthew doesn't say, as Jesus was walking by me. He just writes himself into the story. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, we have to stop right there, like they would have 2,000 years ago reading this book, and realize this is abnormal. Like, we would have read that and thought, that is out of place. Because rabbis, influential spiritual rabbis, and their ministry team, his disciples, they didn't hang out with tax collectors who everyone knew were just ripping off everyone in Israel financially, And all these sinners, it would be like if you walked into a strip club and saw me and all the staff of Journey Church International having dinner, you would be like, "Uh, that is out of place. By the way, that will never happen. It's just like an illustration in a sermon. But even hearing that, you're like, you know, that wouldn't, that's what Matthew 9 looks like. Rabbis didn't hang out with sinners and sinners didn't hang out with rabbis. There were some rabbis 2000 years ago of the priestly and Leviticus in the Levitical class who wouldn't even go to their own family's funerals because to be around anything unclean might make people think that they were spiritually unclean to be able to go into the temple. They were hypersensitive about being around sinful people. In first century Israel, sinners would never have felt comfortable 
spending time around a well-known rabbi or a religious teacher unless something happened that kind of said, you're welcome with me. I'm here for you. Like this would never have happened unless something else didn't happen first that let all of those people know it's okay for you to be with Jesus and his ministry team. And something did happen. Right in Matthew 9, leading into the cameo of Matthew, something happened. If you still have your Bible open, let's look at verse 1. It says, Jesus stepped into a boat. He crossed over. We know the Sea of Galilee is what it's referring to. And he came to his own town that was Capernaum. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Blaspheming is making yourself equal to God because only God can forgive sins. Verse 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority. Circle, underline, highlight the word authority. This is the key to this passage. I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up. Take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such, what's the word? Authority. Circle it again or underline it again. To man. I must have read this story in Sunday school a hundred times, starting at the age of three and four and going to 39. And it wasn't until recently that I realized I had it all wrong. I was told the story this way, so I understood the story this way, that people watched Jesus heal the guy, and they were all in awe that Jesus could take a paralyzed man and tell him to stand up and walk away, and that the amazement of the crowd was that Jesus physically healed the man. But that's not what Matthew 9 says. Matthew 9 says, Jesus said, I'm going to prove to you that I have authority to forgive people of their sins. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell this guy who can't walk to get up, stand up, and walk. Not to prove I can physically heal him, but to prove I can forgive people of their sins. And when he did it, it said the crowd was in awe, and they praised God, not that he had physically healed a man, but that there was actually someone who could forgive their sins. Their amazement was over the spiritual healing, not the physical healing, which is why Jesus didn't go have lunch with a crowd of physically crippled people. He went to have lunch with a crowd of spiritually crippled people because the sinner said, if this guy can really do that, then I need him in my life. Jesus demonstrated his purpose. He told his purpose and it drew people to him for his purpose. You see, while most people live to save themselves, Jesus' purpose is different. So Jesus hanging on the cross says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing how did the crowd respond by saying thank you by saying help me understand that right after jesus said father forgive them they turned on him and said it's not about us save yourself did you see it luke 23 35 the ruler said let him save himself he wants to forgive us he needs to save himself first luke 23 37 the soldiers looked at him said you want to forgive us save yourself first luke 23 39 the people on the cross with him said you want to save save us save yourself what they didn't realize is jesus didn't come to save himself Not even when it got difficult. Jesus didn't come to save himself. Jesus came to go through the difficult so he could save and forgive us because Jesus' purpose always has more to do with you than it does himself, always. His entire life, 
His crucifixion, his burial, his death, and his 40 days of ministry after it had more to do with you than it did with him. That's why as a church, you need to understand we're starting new services. Because people who follow Jesus never make it just about them. It has to be about who else needs what God is doing here too. It's why we built a building. We were comfortable in a school. But we knew there were people in this community who needed something a little more solid so that they might come and meet Jesus. That's why we're going to Lee Summit West for high school. Because none of you want to bring your friend to sit in a dark room and watch TV on Easter. You want them to be able to be in the environment that God is moving in. And I know a lot of you are going to bring your friends because we have a church that has a heart to see people far from God know who Jesus is. It's why we invest the first 15% of what comes into the offering because followers of Jesus know it's just not about them. It's about those who are not here yet too. That comes from Jesus. And when questioned about his purpose, Jesus was pretty clear. The, 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 the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, they saw him eating lunch with Matthew and all his little sinful friends. And they were like, what are you doing? Why in the world would you be eating lunch with all those sinners? Why would you be inviting one of those sinners onto your ministry team that doesn't even make sense? And Jesus said, great question. And he answered with a challenge in verses 12 and 13. On hearing the question, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Then he gave him an assignment. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. And not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous, I've come to call sinners. You know, if you're here today, and you're not a Christian, because you say, I'm, I think I'm too sinful to ever be a Christian. If you're here today, and you're not a Christian, because you think the sin of your past disqualifies you, you need to understand, you are a first-round draft pick spiritually. Jesus came for you. If you're here and you say, you know, I'd like to be a Christian, but I'm a sinner. You need to understand Jesus has a name with your jersey on the back and he has your name written on the draft card and he wants to draft you like he drafted Matthew onto his team to help him in his mission to change the world. Jesus loves sinners. And if you think, well, I'd like to be connected to Jesus, but I've got a lot of bad things going on in my life. You are a perfect person for Jesus. I met someone after our first service who was here who, who prayed to connect his life to Jesus and become a Christian at the end of the service. Marched down the aisle, met me at the steps, introduced himself, and said, you, you say that your church is for people far from God. I need, you, I need to tell you, there is no one more far from God in this community than me. But today I've decided to follow Jesus. And I said, man, that's awesome. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. I've been coming to church here for, you for a few weeks. He said, I'll go out to dinner with my friends and tell them, you need to come to this church I'm going to. And they start laughing at me. And they're like, dude, you don't go to church. He's like, I am so far from God. No one would even believe that I come to church. But I want to follow Jesus. And I said, he came for people like you. Tell your friends to come. Tell your friends to come. It's why Jesus came. And his statement on the cross reveals that purpose for us. But the second thing his statement does is it reminds us that ignorance does not equal innocence when it comes to our spiritual standing before God. Ignorance does not equal innocence. Look at what Jesus said again in Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus didn't say, Father, forgive them, because they know better. 
Jesus didn't say, Father, forgive them because we told them they shouldn't do this and they're doing it anyway. Jesus didn't say, Father, forgive them. They're just in rebellion. He said, Father, forgive them. At this point, they're not even aware of what they're doing. But at some point, they're going to realize that these actions have separated them from you. And when they get it, Lord, forgive them. You know, just because you don't know all of God's standards doesn't mean that you won't be held accountable for them one day. Like, have you ever been stopped by a police officer at a place where you weren't sure of the speed limit? Have you ever tried that excuse with them? I have. It doesn't work. Do you know how fast you were going? Yes. Do you know the speed limit? No. Well, okay. I guess you're okay. Then, you know, next time try to go, it's like, no, I'm accountable when I'm at the wheel to know the speed limit where I'm driving. And you are accountable, according to scripture, to know the standards of God and to work to meet them. You know, I had a a little preteen kid in our church few weeks ago kind of bounce up to me in the hallway all excited uh, they were like pastor christian pastor christian it's like hey they're like, i got a joke for you i said okay um and they said if if jesus had a coffee shop what would it be named and like i'd heard that one before so but you know but i wanted to humor him and i'm like i don't know and they're like hebrews you know like like get it hebrews and i was like yeah I, you know i get it and they're like you know like Hebrews in the Bible and like coffee. I'm like, yes, I get like, I get your joke. Thank you. Run along now. You know, it was like one of those moments, but I, you know, I just kind of chuckled to myself and I thought these kids don't even know what that means. Like they don't know what Hebrews is. You know how many Christians there are who don't know what Hebrews means? It's interesting when you study the known people of Israel or names connected to Israel, even today, you know, we read about names that we don't know are people. You know, the Israelites are known as a Semitic people because one of their forefathers was a guy named Shem. And for a long time, the Israelites were known as people who were of a Shemitic descendant. So we hear people today when things happen like are happening all over the world, that there's a lot of anti-Semitism. What does that mean? That people don't like the descendants of Shem in Genesis 10, 21. Shem's great, great grandson was a man named Eber. Probably his mailbox, as you pulled into his driveway, would have said the Ebers. And at some point, somebody tagged it with an extra H and maybe a W. And, you know, they became the Hebrews. I'm not sure how that word involved. But Eber was like a person. And the Jews were not even called Jews till like a thousand years after the nation of Israel had been around. After there had been a civil war and the southern half broke off and was known as Judah. A guy named Daniel and his friends had been captured by the nation of Babylon and they had kind of a narcissistic king named Nebuchadnezzar who built a big idol that they wouldn't bow down and worship. And some of his people came and said, the people from Judah, the Jews, the, Ju- the Jews from Judah, they won't do this. I mean, we know them as Jews today, but it was a thousand years before anybody called them that. But the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, the Israelite people, the Semitic people, they understood that their life had to be lived to a specific standard to be in relationship with God. And in the book of Hebrews, which by the way, the book of Hebrews could have been called a letter to Jewish people. The book of Hebrews could have been named, Hey Israelites, like the book of Hebrews is a, a New Testament book written to Jewish people. And it reminded them that one day you will be accountable to God in Hebrews 9.27. The author of Hebrews reminded the Jewish people that it was appointed for men to die once and after that they would be judged. I don't think there's anyone in this room who doesn't believe that everyone in here will die. I don't even know that there's a lot of people in this room who wouldn't say there's some kind of judgment after death. Where we might differ or where we might be unsure is what we're judged on. 
And Jesus answered that question for us in Matthew 5, 48. What are you judged on? After you die, what are you judged on? What's the standard that God uses? Jesus says, here it is. Therefore, be perfect. Just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You know, when I read those two verses together, here's the spiritual reality of my life. I don't like to think of myself as a sinner. I mean, I don't. I, you know what? I, I read the news. I watch the news. I see what's going on in the world. There's a lot of other people doing, it seems like, worse things than I would do. I don't like to think of myself as a sinner. But at the same time, I know I don't have the perfection of God. And maybe you're the same way. You don't like to think of yourself as a sinner. You're, you're probably, listen, from an integrity standpoint, you might be the best at the school you work at. From an integrity standpoint, you might be the finest in the industry that you work at. From an integrity standpoint, you might be the best in your family. I mean, we don't like to think of ourselves as sinners, especially if we work hard for Jesus in our life. But I don't know that there's a person in the room who would say, I have the perfection of God. We would all say, I fall somewhere in between, which means we would all say, I fall short of God, even when I'm not sure what his standards are, I know I'm not perfect, so I fall short. Which means this I don't want to think of myself as a sinner, but I know I'm not perfect, so when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, he means me. When Jesus hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, he was talking to me. Jesus was talking to me from the cross, and he was saying, Father, one day you're going to have to forgive Christian. And he was talking to you. On the cross, on this day in history, Jesus was thinking about you and he was saying, Father, one day you're going to have to, you're going to, have to forgive them. Not because they're bad people, but they're not the perfection of God. So I'm going to ask you to forgive them even before they know that. You know, as Jesus said this from the cross, there were several groups of people around the cross listening. And I think they represent us today in some of the stages of life we might be in spiritually. Do you see yourself at the cross? There were the criminals there. The criminals are those who weren't just sinful, but they got caught. You know, there's a big difference between doing something wrong and being caught doing something wrong. Being caught feels a whole lot worse, but they're equally bad. There were the crucifiers. I mean, whose job was to punish and inflict pain on people. And maybe you don't live for Jesus outside the doors of a church because your job. And you say, you know, my job and the people I work around and how they ask me to conduct business, it doesn't allow me to really live my life well as a Christian. You're like the crucifiers then. They're, we're the casual observers. They're just kind of watching, checking out, trying to figure out the Jesus thing. There were those who were condemning and prideful. They thought they had the whole religious thing figured out and no one in the world could be as spiritual as them. There were those who were condescending, kind of looking at Jesus saying, I'm sure something you did in your past caused this. It's probably all your fault. There were the cruel and the crass, stealing his clothes while he hung on the cross. And then there were the confused. There were people at the cross, like there are people in this room. Listen to me, look at me. There were people on the cross who had put all their faith in Jesus and expected one outcome, and on this day it was different. Some of you are like that. You have all your life put your faith in Jesus, and something is not going right right now. Then you're confused. Those people were at the cross. But then something happened. Of all these people at the cross that Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, one of them realized what he was doing. 
One of the criminals that hung beside Jesus, I don't know whether it was the one on his right or on his left. I, I have kind of both ADD and OCD, so I would like to know which one that it was. It would make me feel like I understood the story better if I knew if Jesus was looking right or left. I'm not sure which one it was. It bothers me, but just a little bit. Who looked at Jesus and said, you know, all these people don't understand what they're doing, but I got it. What I did was wrong. And I don't think you've done anything wrong. And I'm sorry. So, so when, when you are rewarded for your righteous life, will you remember me? Will you help me? I realize I'm being punished because I messed up. But will you help me after this life? And man, at that point, everything changed. You see, regardless of where we fall on the above list, criminals, crucifiers, casual observers, and on down, once our heart is contrite, then, right then, Jesus' purpose begins to be fulfilled in our life. Say, Christian, what does contrite mean? I was hoping you'd ask. I was hoping as you wrote that word down that you thought, what what does that mean? Because that is the answer to the riddle. Say, what riddle? Remember when Jesus was sitting at Matthew's house and the religious people came by and they said, why would you eat with all these sinners? And Jesus said, if you can answer this question, you'll figure it out. Go figure out. He didn't tell them, go figure out what contrite means, but that's what he wanted them to figure out. He said, go figure out what it means that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, every religious leader who heard that knew that Jesus was referencing Psalm 51 because a lot of them had the entire Old Testament memorized. So when they said, why are you eating with sinners? Jesus basically said, go check out Psalm 51 and then you come back and tell me. So they go read Psalm 51, which is a journal entry of a man named David who had lost his mind. David had had an affair with one of his friend's wives and he had ruined his marriage. David, as a boss, had then put the people who worked for him in such a terrible position that many lost their lives and were, were terribly impacted forever because of his poor leadership as a boss. Then he probably overused his position of power to, to marry this woman and kind of put her in, a, in an awful position the rest of her life. And, and then they had a kid together who, because he didn't spiritually parent well, ended up dying. I mean, things were going wrong. He became a, a kind of drunken, boozer, party animal. And after everything had gone wrong, he finally realized, man, I'm so away from God. And, and he said, I, like, I got to get right with God again. And in this process, he writes Psalm 51. And here's what he said in Psalm 51 that Jesus wanted the religious rulers to remember. David said, God, you don't delight in sacrifice or I'd bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. You know what both of those things were going to church? Symbolically, sacrifices and burnt offerings were what you would do. They They were the religious activities. David said, if I could figure out how to cover up all the messes I've made by just going to church and doing religious stuff, I would... But that's not going to work. So he says in verse 17, my sacrifice, the only thing that I can give, oh God, is a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, you God will not despise. David said, I cannot bring anything to you except a spirit that says, I'm sorry. I can't do anything to make you even think I'm a spiritual person other than just say, I'm sorry for what I've done. They asked Jesus, why would you be eating lunch with sinners? And Jesus said, go, go read what David wrote down. Jesus said, because I want to be with people who are sorry for their sin. That's my purpose in life. You know what a contrite heart is? It's broken by sin. 
It's a spirit that realizes it's empty and needs more. Someone who's sorry for the actions of their past or maybe their present. It's someone who needs and wants forgiveness for what's going on in their life. And on this day on the cross, Jesus was and he still is today looking for hearts who know that they need forgiveness. That's who he's looking for. He's not looking for anyone who can impress him spiritually because we cannot. If we don't have the perfection of God, we don't impress Jesus. He's looking for hearts who know that they need to be forgiven. That's who he's looking for. You know, in the Old Testament, nobody prophesied longer than Isaiah. But remember what Isaiah did when God said, I want to use you in Isaiah 6, 5. Isaiah said, whoa, 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 to me, I cried. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. God said, Isaiah, I want to use you. And Isaiah said, whoa, 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 whoa. God, if you heard the way I talked and if you understood the people I hung around with, I don't know that you can use me. And God said, the very fact that you know those things are wrong tells me there's something in your heart that I can use. Remember the apostle Peter? Nobody was given more responsibility among the 12 disciples than Peter. But remember what happened when Peter met Jesus. Luke 5, 8 says, when Simon Peter saw Jesus, he fell at his knees and said, go away, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Jesus said, hey, Peter, I'd like to use you. And Peter said, I don't think you can use me. I've got so much wrong in my life. And Jesus said, the very fact that you know that and you care and you're sorry makes you a number one draft pick in my book. Come on, I'll help you. You see, Jesus lives to find sinners who are sorry so that he can love them and connect them to God. To his dying moment, that was his purpose. On Halloween night this year, I got a call from my mom, my, si- my little sister, and my nephew were headed from my parents' house just south of Chicago back into the city. And my mom called and said, Christian Marine Quesi had been in an accident and, and they're hurt. You need to pray. And I found out my sister had been driving on 57 Highway. She'd been at my older sister's house. They all lived just south of Chicago. They did trick-or-treating together. And then my little sister was driving home and a man coming the other way on 57 South. He either fell asleep at the wheel or... They think he might have had a heart attack at the wheel. He crossed the median and going 80 miles an hour, he, had, he hit him head on. He died on impact. Marie and Quessie were both knocked unconscious. Marie broke her sternum, her tailbone, her arm, most of her fingers, had a concussion. Little Quessie, because he was in his car seat at four years old, he, he hurt his neck. He kind of threw his shoulder out of place and he shattered the bone in his upper arm. He had a concussion. So they life flighted him and he spent the night in ICU. And my parents sent us a picture of Quessy in ICU that night. And they said, man, just pray. He's not doing well. They've got him sedated, but just pray. They're going to figure out in the morning what to do. So we prayed all night long. And in the morning, I called my mom. First thing, I dropped my kids off to school and headed to where I work out. And I called my mom and said, how's he doing? My mom was in the ICU room with him. And she said, they are literally, the doctor just walked in. And she said, they're, um, they're getting ready to wake him up so they can go do surgery. They're going to have to reset his shoulder and they're going to have to put a bunch of pins and rods and screws in his arm to to kind of put him back together, but they think he's going to be okay. And as they started to wake him up, I heard him begin to scream in the pain that you would imagine a four-year-old being in in this situation who didn't have a whole lot of pain medication because he's just a little guy. I said, Mom, do you want me to let you go while they do this? And she said, no, it's okay. And his screams got louder and louder and louder. And I finally said, Mom, I can't do this. I got to go. And I hung up the phone sitting outside the gym I work out at, and I laid it in the seat beside me, and I just broke down crying and just praying, God, help him. God, help him. God, comfort him. I know he's hurting so bad. God, be with him. And I could not for the rest of the day get my mind off of him 
and his pain. And sometime in the course of that day, as I questioned God about the pain that he was in and comforting that pain, God said, you know, Christian, have you ever really thought about what Jesus must have felt on the cross? Have you ever tried to listen for the screams, the groans? Have you ever thought about that moment? And then, have you thought about that during that time he wasn't screaming for himself, but he was screaming for you? I mean, have you thought about in the moment of his most intense, violent pain, that he wanted you to hear that you're forgiven so that when you realize you're less than perfect and you became sorry, that he could connect to your heart in a way that would connect you to God now and forever. You know, Jesus' words from the cross, Father, forgive them, are for you. And they are for today. What do you need forgiveness for today? Maybe you're a Christian who's been living in sin, straight up rebellion, or maybe just laziness. Or maybe you've embraced an attitude that says, I just don't care about God or trust God right now. And maybe you need to ask God to forgive you today. He will. Jesus said it from the cross. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian and you've just been running from God because you could never be perfect enough to meet his standard, but you're hearing today, you don't have to be. You're saying, okay, well, if that's, if that's what God wants, I am sorry. And I do want to do better. So if that's what Jesus offers, I'm in. What do you need forgiveness for today? We bow your heads and pray with me.